And uh, today we'll be reading through uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 7. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles uh, all along the pews, and it's uh, page 976 in between Galatians and Philippians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen. All right. That is so good. Love you, TK. Thank you so much for being part of this family. Um, want to start off by asking kind of a silly question, and then you will find out that we're going to ramp up really and be real quick and be really serious, but I'm going to be merciful by starting off lighter, because this text is not light, and the text should determine my, my attitude, right? Um, but I don't know if any of you guys have recently re-watched an old movie that you saw as a kid, or like watched a Disney movie in the last few years, and I thought to yourself, like, oh my gosh, like, I totally didn't really see it. Like, I had no idea that person was like that. Or, or if you've seen Mulan lately, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And when I, as a kid, I was just excited. And Elijah loves watching Mulan, and he loves the fighting, and he's excited about that. But he's not seeing all the intricacies, and then the very end when they're all bowing to her, and then the, my greatest honor is having you as a daughter, right? And like all that kind of stuff, like, is like deeply moving, and I cry every single time. And um, I, I, I think probably most of us have done that. Or maybe you've looked back and um, have watched a movie that you thought was hilarious. Here's a great example, right? If any of you guys have seen um, Napoleon Dynamite. I remember when Napoleon came out, my friends, they literally spent like, they watched it like six times in the movie theater. I don't know how they had the money. And I remember loving it and thinking it was the best movie ever. And recently, maybe a couple years ago, I watched the movie and I did not laugh. I thought it was ridiculous. Anyone, any, has anyone done that, right? Maybe I'm offending you deeply because you think it's still funny, but it's not funny. It's not funny anymore, right? And so, so that's a really silly start, but I, but I think all of us have this kind of experience where in the future, um, as we've gotten older and, and matured, we look back at different experiences and we see it with fresh eyes because we're different now. And if you're a parent, this is evidently clear all the time where you're like, I can't believe my mom changed my diaper. I mean, like, it is terrible. I can't believe she did that. And then on the negative side, maybe you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that, right? Like, I can't believe my parents did that. What? I, that's so messed up, right? So, like, we can look back at things and see it in fresh eyes. And that's kind of what Ephesians chapter 2 does. Uh, I know that sounds like a forced transition, but that really is what it does. And when I first became a Christian, I was 15. But it was only until I was 18 that I was starting to read passages like this, and my mind was blown. And I realized what kind of mess I was before Jesus saved me. I knew I was a mess when Jesus saved me, but I didn't realize how much of a mess I was. And that's kind of what Paul is trying to do to these Ephesians. He's trying to show them, hey, this is what God did. You have no clue of how messed up things were. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to start off by asking a very simple question. What's wrong with people in the world? What's wrong with people in the world? Like, what's fundamentally wrong and broken about people? And all of us have thought those questions, maybe to a family member or spouse, where you look and you like, what's wrong with you? You guys, anyone done that, like, this week? Like, what's wrong with you? I can't believe you right? Or if you watch the news for even five minutes, you look on the news and say, man, what's wrong with that person? I can't believe they did that. Now, in our day and age, we have lots of different theories of what's wrong with people, fundamentally. 
And we have lots of different solutions, as many solutions as there are theories. So you have certain camps, like the School of Nature camp, which just says, if someone is bad or wicked, it's because wicked and bad things have been done to that person. Their environment has cultivated that person to be the way they are. Or maybe they'll say something like, oh, if they just had better education, if they just knew more, they were, they're too ignorant. Or maybe they'll say, man, they just had an under, underprivileged situation. They're, they didn't get enough love. They have a father wound. They're family of origin. And they've done, like, they do Enneagrams and all the kind of stuff that, that I do like. But, but we can give all these reasons why nurture has failed. And so the conclusion for the nurture school is that we're inherently good and decent. We just need the right environment. On the other hand, you guys probably know the nature school. You guys know the nature school? It's, you know what, our DNA has been hardwired, we've been genetically hardwired by our ancestors to be a certain way. And so really, we can't blame someone, they're just being too true to who they are. That there's almost a sense of, uh, of a predestination that you have to do and you'll live out whatever you're genetically wired. Have you guys heard people talk like this? Right, this is very common. And the, they conclude that we're not to blame. People are not to blame. So you got one school that says, hey, you know what? You know, people are pretty much good. You know, and people who say that don't have kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're pretty much good, right? Or we say, you know, we're, we're just not to blame because we're genetically hardwired. And, and I believe both schools are right at some level. I think there's truth to both schools. However, I think they both fundamentally miss the mark on what's wrong with people, what's wrong with me and you. In the long history of the human race, there's basically three kind of theories of what, what's wrong with people. Man is either pretty much good, sick, or dead. For number one, supporters of this view argue that all man needs is a good diet, exercise, good loving family, good environment, and they're pretty much good, and so are you. The second view agree that man is sick maybe even morally sick, but his situation is certainly not hopeless. With the right attitude and hard work, hard, hard work man can pull him up self by his bootstraps and make things right. And third is the biblical view, and it's that we are dead in our transgressions and sins, and all of man's self-help will ultimately avail to nothing. It's not going to be a fun message. I'm going to be honest with you. But I promise you, we're going to come up for air and it's going to be really worth it. But it's going to be hard for a little bit. In order to have, to have any hope for change in this world, change in people, we got to have also the right diagnosis and the right remedy. Right? You can't have amazing remedy but for the wrong diagnosis. Hey, I have this great heart surgery. It's going to be fantastic. And the person says, I have a hernia though, right? So it doesn't matter if you have great solutions. We need both the right solution and the right diagnosis. And so the Bible has great news for us because it has both. The great problem with people and the great solution for people. So if you have a Bible, would you please turn to Ephesians chapter 2 if you haven't already. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in these things called pews. And you could flip it open. In the very beginning, it will show you where Ephesians is, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, as you're turning there and getting ready, let me sh share with you three goals I have for this message. Number one, my goal is for Christians in here to deeply feel the weight of what Christ saved us from. I think most of us have zero clue of how bad we really were. I didn't know. And then for us to respond with unbelievable praise and awe and gratitude. My second goal for this message is to help those who aren't actually born again to realize what a perilous, dead state they're in and how much they need mercy. And my hope is that afterwards, you would rise out of that and cling to Jesus and find mercy. And number three, I want all of us to walk away in awe of God. And like I said earlier, I want to qualify this. I don't mean to be mean. I don't. But I got to be honest, and because I love you, even those of you I don't even know your name yet, I love you, I do, because God has loved me. I'm going to say hard things because the text says hard things. But we will come up for air, and it will be worth it. All right, so Ephesians. Now, 
first of all, what's the context? As you guys know, we have these uh, five questions we ask when we study the Bible. What's the context? Who is God? What has he done? And so forth. The first question, what's the context? What are we heading into? We're in the middle of a letter. So we can't just like just jump right in without understanding what's going on. So right in the beginning, what, what's going on? You remember last week, Pastor Ross preached on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, or, or more than that. But look at 19 and 20 if you have a Bible. Chapter 1, 19 through 20. And if you could quickly scan over that, you can see that the, Paul is talking about this great power, the Holy Spirit that is at work in Christ and work on us, and talks about this beautiful power of the Holy Spirit to resurrect and bring Christ from death to life. And so now Paul in chapter 2 is expanding on that and saying, you know that Holy Spirit that brought Christ from the dead? He did the same thing to you spiritually. And let me show you what that looks like, what happened. And if you look in the very beginning of chapter 2, what's that first word that this chapter starts with? And. And. And it's, it's a conjunction, right? It's continuing what was going on. So he's expanding what's going on. So now let's look at this. And you were dead in the trespasses in sin. What, what does he mean by that? That's strange language. Is it metaphorical? How can you be dead? He's talking to real people. If they were dead, how could they read it? Right? You see the logic? Impeccable, right? Because they're spiritually dead. This spiritual death will ultimately lead to physical death. However, the spiritual death has parallels with, with physical death. I'm going to unpack that a little more. Let me read this quote from the famous pastor John Stott, who passed away, who's physically dead now, just like 10 years ago. We should not hesitate to reaffirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death, and that those who live it are dead even while they are living. But what does that mean? Well, the rest of the context of this passage actually unpacks what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Okay, so let's keep going. Now, you're going to see three active antagonists in this text. Think of them as three prison guards, three spiritual prison guards that are against all of us in this room. The flesh, which is within us, the world, which is without us, with, outside of us, and Satan and his demons, which are in another realm, but actively working and influencing the world and flesh against us. So we got this unholy trinity, the flesh, the world, Satan, constantly, actively working to destroy us. And you're going to see all three of these in this passage. Let's look at verse 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In this passage, we see that the Ephesians, before they came to Christ, or any of the Ephesians who were listening to this letter read, who weren't currently following Jesus, are following two entities. You see that in the text? Following two different things. First, following the course of this world. What do I mean by this word world? Do I mean the earth? They're following the earth? I'm not talking about the physical earth, but the world and its philosophies, its values, its systems. It's absolutely different from the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God's values. And so what the world, what, what God says is beautiful and valuable, the world says is evil. What God says is evil, the world said is beautiful. And so the world is kind of the, the world system that is at odds with God. So when you see world in the Bible, most of the time it's in a negative way. Sometimes it's in a more neutral, positive way. So I just want to make that clear. What, so what does it mean to follow the course of this world? Hey, Rick. So good to see you, brother. Rick is a mentor of mine and a teacher at Bethlehem, and it is an honor for him to be here. So if I, if I like, make mistakes or, like, pass out, or start stumbling, it's because of him, all right? But I fear God more than him, I think. All right. So what does it mean to follow the course of the world? Well, I think it means like this. The world says, 
jump, and unbelievers say, how high? We tell the world, we ask the world, and this is what I was like when I was 15, right before I became a Christ, tell me, world, what should I value? Tell me, world, what is beautiful? Tell me, world, what is lovely? Tell me, world, what my purpose is. Tell me, world, what is funny? Tell me, world, what is success? And we drink it in. We play this giant game of following the leader. And isn't it pretty freaky that there's an elite group of people, and I don't want to get all Illuminati and conspiracy theory, but this is true, okay, this is true, okay? That there's a small group of elite people in the world who literally tell us what is beautiful. They'll sit there in a board meeting, I wish I was a fly on the wall, and they sit there and say, all right, what are the fashions going to be this next season? All right, what's going to make people look ridiculous, right? Or they'll do something. And we're like, oh, that's ridiculous. And then we see someone we really admire, celebrity, where you're like, oh, that's, that's hot. That's, that's great. I love that. That's so good, right? And I do this. This happens to me all the time, right? I'll see a new fad that comes out. And I'm like, Joanna, my wife Joanna, never wear that. And then like a year later, I'm like, yeah, that looks pretty good. You should, you should probably get that, right? And at that point, it's at like in Target and stuff, right? It's like it's not mainstream. Like we're always one season behind, my family. If you ever look at our wardrobe, it's always like a year or two behind, right? But as funny as that is, I'm actually really disturbed by that. And I hope you are too. There are certain people who can literally dictate what we think is beautiful, what is attractive. And I think that's kind of part, not fully, but part of what it means to be following the course of the world. The world just tells us what we should believe what we should love, what we should value. And really, if you just look at media or Twitter or Facebook, whatever's trending, and oftentimes it's, it's chosen for what's trending, tells us what we should be interested about. So apparently I should be really interested about the royal family. I don't know if you guys see that, but I see all these things, like the royal family were at this place. I was like, why do I care? But apparently, well, like, apparently they're special, so I'm going to care, right? Anyone? You guys remember when they got married? All of a sudden, I was like, who's Meghan Markle? Oh, man, Meghan Markle's the best. Like, I, I got to know about Meghan Markle, right? Because everyone told me I should know about Meghan Markle. She's, she's great, though. She's great. And as funny as that is, I hope you're disturbed by that. Now, here's a question. Who runs the course of this world? Who runs the world? Well, keep looking back at verse 2. The prince of the power of the air. Now, I believe that's Satan, and the majority of interpreters and pastors and scholars would say that's Satan, but I don't have time to unpack why that is, so that's going to be on the midweek podcast this week. So if you want to be like, why is that? What does it mean, the power of the air? I'm going to hopefully unpack that, Pastor Ross and I will. But let me ask you, let me show you this. Go to 1 John 5.19. Let's look at more about what it looks like for Satan to be influencing the world. 1 John 5.19, it's further on in the, the book. John is saying, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And if, it, and if you're not there yet, it's on the screen. Hear that. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the whole world is under the power of Satan, and he leads it. So who leads the world? And it sounds so weird. I, like, feel weird when I say Satan because it sounds so, like, I think media has done a great job to make me feel like Satan's such a weird thing to say. But, like, Satan, he leads it. He influences the world. And so if you are reading between the lines the clear implica imp implication of this text that if you are not following Jesus and you are following the world, you are then actually following Satan. And that sounds, feels really weird to say. But it's true. You are following Satan. There is no neutral. I don't choose sides. I'm libertarian, right? Like, no, you follow Satan if you're not following Christ, even if you don't know it, because he's influencing the world that you are being shaped by. And that goes for our friendly neighborhood Mormon who's so moral and sweet to the, and I know this is hard to say, to the atheist grandma who's at the corner of the street that bakes cookies for everyone. That they're under the, the realm, the dominion of the evil one. 
Let's look back at verse 2. I told you this isn't going to be fun, but it will be worth it, I promise. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Quickly, sons of disobedience, just think people who are in rebellion to God, non-Christians. But what is the spirit doing? How does the spirit, how does the evil one work? Well, if you can flip to 2 Corinthians 4.4 quickly, or it's going to be on the screen, 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world, namely Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan actively is working in unbelievers and sons of disobedience to blind them so that they cannot see the beauty of Christ and not see their need for Christ. And so Satan is very happy for people to think Jesus is a swell guy or a great teacher or even a God, but he's not going to let them see. He's going to fight with all of his might to keep them from being blind to seeing that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him, that we desperately need Jesus. And he's trying to constantly keep us blind from the dire situation that we are in. And there is a very popular meme on the internet with a dog with like a cup. Have you seen this one? And everything is fire around him, and he says, I'm fine. Anyone know that one? Gosh, that doesn't help because no one knows it. All right. Some of you know it. But that's what it is. We're sitting there like this, drinking cup. I'm fine. It's all good. And we're engulfed in fire, and it's hell. It sucks. And yet we think we're fine, and that is the evil one working. And just like a dead person can't see because they're dead, that is what is happening for those who are not in Christ. They cannot see. Spiritually see. I'm talking about spiritual sight. And what is so bone-chillingly scary is that right now, Satan, if you're hearing my voice, can actively be blinding you. That you may hear these words, but it just doesn't click. It just goes over. Because you're blind to seeing the glory, the beauty, the worth of Christ, and you do not see your present state. And I hope that puts chills down your spine and makes your skin crawl that there is an adversary who is more powerful than anyone in this room, if not for Christ, and he is actively plotting to destroy you and keeping you from Jesus. And if you're wondering, am I blind? You know what? That's actually a good sign. See, because the blind person doesn't even wonder. If God's not at work, you don't even ask. And so if you're wondering, am I blind? Am I really the real deal? Am I really a Christian? Have I really seen Christ? Come talk with us. We love to pray with you. Come talk with us after. Now, what is the fruit of following Satan in the world? What's the result? Would you look at verse 3? Ephesians 2, 3. We're back in Ephesians. Among whom we all once lived, remember he's speaking about every Christian before Christ, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I think we all kind of know what this text means. I think all of us here has felt the, the drive of our flesh, our desires, when we've done things that we, haven't, we knew that we shouldn't do, but we just couldn't help ourselves, that we were driven by passions. But if you need more help, Paul actually impacts this more in Galatians chapter 5. It's going to be up there. I think the New Living Translation helpfully makes it more clear for our modern-day vernacular. Galatians 5, 5, 19 through 20. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature or flesh, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, division. You know, the first half of that list actually makes a lot of sense. It's like really a, oh yeah, duh. The second half is a little harder, right? Like even jealousy, even dissensions, divisions, quarreling? Wow. But I think to make the realities of the flesh even more tangible and just really simplify this whole list and simplify what does it mean to live out and carry out the desires of your flesh and your passions, 
I want to show with you a picture. Do you guys know who this is? This guy, his name is Aleister Crowley. Anyone know who Aleister Crowley is? Okay, great. Oh, one person. There we go. All right. Tell us who we... Okay, no. Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley died in 1947, but in his life he accomplished many, many things. But foremost in that list is that he founded the religion called Thelema. Thelema being from the Greek word thelos, uh, or thelo, and desire, will. And he was announced in the popular media as the wickedest man in the world and a Satanist. When he was on his honeymoon in Cairo, Egypt, him and his, he encountered a supernatural being whom he called Awas. And Awas, he later called his guardian angel. Now, Awas gave him this very special text. It's called the Book of the Law. He dictated word for word. And so many acclaim this text as a sacred satanic text. Now, I have a reason for all this. Why? What would you think would be, what would you guess would be the number one commandment in that book? If our commandment is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, what would be the greatest commandment in a satanic text? Kill people? Worship Satan? Nope. It's this, do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Do what thou desires. Do what you want. And if you've heard in our popular, popular culture, we have elegantly have so said it, you do you. You guys hear that? Hey, you do you. You just do you. Right? It's very, very elegant and very, very beautiful. You do you. I kind of like that saying, but you do you. And you know what's so funny is that this statement, do what thou wilt, the number one commandment in this satanic Bible, is really the mantra of our culture. Is it not? You do you. Man, you do you, I do me, we're all good. Like, just, just keep to our own thing as long as we don't hurt each other, just you do you. I think that's kind of what, if you want to sum up the whole of the flesh, the actions of the flesh, it's that. Do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want. And that will kind of typify the realities of the flesh. Now, I want to talk to you about an, a doctrine that some theologians call total depravity, because this is a passage where a lot of people turn to. I'm going to go nerd mode for a moment. I'll go nerd more, mode more in the midweek podcast, but... Let me talk to you about total depravity. Let me read a quote from uh, a guy named R.C. Sproul. Total depravity is a very misleading term. The concept of total depravity is often confused with the idea of utter depravity. Total depravity is not utter depravity. Utter depravity would mean that we are all as sinful as we possibly could be. We know that this is not the case. No matter how much each of us have sinned, we are able to think of worse sins that we could have committed. I mean, even Adolf Hitler refrained from murdering his mother. Total depravity refers to the idea that our whole humanity is fallen. That is, there is no part of me that has not been affected in some way by the fall. The fall, man's rejection of God, the whole world being cursed. Sin affects my will, my heart, my mind, and my body. So God's problem with us, and the problem we have is not just that we do bad things, but that fundamentally even our desires are broken. We don't desire the right things. We don't delight in the right things. Our will, our mind, our thoughts, everything has been tainted at some level. And this is not to say that there can't be any good in the world or that a non-believer can't do something good because they are made in the image of God. But that fundamentally at every level, there is some sort of tainted corruption that has eked into them as a result of the fall. So hopefully that's helpful if you have heard this term total depravity before and you've been confused about it. This is a passage people will go to to talk about that. Now I want to address people who may have not done many quote-unquote bad things in their life. Maybe you grew up in a really great Christian home. You had really great experiences with your family and so forth. And your rap list isn't very threatening. It's not very impressive in the negative way. What I'll say is this. 
Our genetic makeup, family upbringing, and social circumstances determine precisely how we might express our sinful nature. But the heart is the same. If we just took your heart and put it in a different context, different opportunities or lack of opportunities, you could have a completely different result. So we can easily be very judgy in the church. Oh, I can't believe you did that. Or, and you would just be just like that person if you were in that situation. The heart is the same. That is the issue. The outcomes may look different depending on the context, but the heart is the same. So here's the terrible news is that we are at the mercies of our passions and our flesh and our desires, and all of it is corrupt. And Christians here, those of you guys who are Christians, do you remember before Christ what your flesh was like, what it was like to be under the foot of Satan, constantly being led astray and not having any hope? I mean, that happened 15, when I, I, it's been 15 years for me since I became a Christian. I can still remember it. I can still remember the, the kind of misery of that existence. Don't forget that. Don't forget where you've come from. Let me ask you this, what is the primary consequence of spiritual death? We see it in our passage in verse 3, the last part of it. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath, this also can be translated in other Bibles, deserving of wrath. Now, I say wrath and immediately I have all these qualifiers because wrath man, whoa, Sam, wrath, come on, man. I mean, this is the 21st century. Wrath, that's so archaic, that's so primitive. I mean, God is just flying off the handle and he's crazy. No, 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 no. God's wrath is a pure, holy, just anger towards sin and evildoers. It is perfectly under control and it's perfectly appropriate. It's an overflow of his, his holiness. And the issue we have in our modern culture, and to say that God is only love, he's not wrath, he's not any of that, is because we have a very, very small view of two things. We have a very small view of God. He's kind of like us, just a little bit stronger, a little bit better, and kind of do, he's like a big berry. And then we have a very, very small view of our sin. I'm not that bad. Like, I'm not, I'm not that bad. But to exist in God's presence, in His holiness, I heard one author say it like this, it's like standing on the surface of the sun unprotected. Which is kind of the reality for the Christian, except we are protected, we are covered, we are forgiven. But if you do not have Christ, if you want to stand in the perfect goodness and holiness of God, you are like that person who has no covering and you're trying to stand right in front of the sun. And if you even try to look at the sun from millions of miles away, we can't even look. Can you imagine the amount of intensity and instant obliteration and suffering that would be like? And I just want to make a quick case that everyone here is guilty. I know that's a hard thing to say, and I know that sounds arrogant, and I know I am arrogant at some levels, and I, God help me, I want to be more humble. But everyone in this room is guilty. Every one of us is guilty. I am guilty. This is what I mean. Let, let, me, let me ask a few questions. Has anyone here lied lately? Anyone here lied multiple times? Has anyone here rejoiced at the suffering of someone you didn't like? Has anyone here been upset because someone you didn't like was blessed? Does anyone here lust after people who are not their spouse? See, all of us can answer the affirmative to most of these questions, if not all. And the reality is, if the thoughts of all of your mind, every one of our mind, minds, the, the motivations of our heart, and every action we've done in secret since we've been born, if it was projected on that screen, I think every single one of us would flee. If we could all see the long list of every thought, oh, she did that, or she wears that, or he did that, or I did this, if we had that whole list, we would be absolutely ashamed and embarrassed, and we would know full well our guilt. Which I wonder if that's something like that's going to happen when people face God on Judgment Day, that somehow He's going to be able to give them a quick glimpse of all that they have done so that no one will be like, oh, I don't deserve this. 
there's been a lot of bad news. I know. And it's been hard, and some of you are probably frustrated at me and annoyed by me. But we cannot properly bring healing when there is not a proper diagnosis. The remedy is only as sweet as you know, as far as you know how bad the situation is. And hopefully, by God's grace, you are able to get a glimpse of how bad the situation was for you, Christian, and for those who are not a Christian, how bad it is for you now. But now we go to one of my favorite texts in the entire Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, if you look at it. I love this text. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This is so beautiful. But God, it interrupts this sentence. Bad, 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 peril, peril, peril. But God, it's like a, it's like a rain cloud that just came and just got, came right up from a mountain during a 30-year drought. It's kind of like the man who is a, condemned in front of a judge and jury, and he knows he is guilty. Everyone knows he's guilty. And right before the judge throws the gavel to the ground, the doors in the back burst open, and it's the son of the judge. And he comes down, and he says, hey, I'll take that kid's punishment. I'm innocent. He's not, but I'll be treated like I'm him. But God, and a lot of us in here have had our marriages in shambles, but what I want to say to you, and hopefully this is prophetic by the Spirit, but God, your marriage is not looking good, but God. You are repeatedly in addictions, but God. You can't get over something, you can't shake it, but God. Your life is falling apart, but God. I am praying for some but God tonight. And in the previous section, we were at a valley, a de valley of death, and now we are going to climb this unscalable mountain of goodness and love. And notice, what is God like? Who is God? Remember, this is part of our five-part Bible study questions that we're trying to train ourselves to do. What is God like? Well, He's rich in mercy, and He loves us. And if you read throughout the Bible and you look at the instances of God's wrath and His mercy, you know what? God does have wrath. He does have just wrath. But if you look at Exodus 33, his, if you took wrath and mercy and you put them on a scale, it's tilted towards mercy. God is tilted towards mercy. He delights in showing mercy. And you're, there's a lot of things you can be rich in. Someone's like, I'm rich in money. You know what God's rich in? Mercy. He's rich in mercy. And he loves us greatly. And so what does God do because he's so full of mercy and so rich in love? Verse 5 is what he does. Notice that he helps us remember our situation, our state. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So this great God of mercy brought us from spiritual death to life just like he brought his son from physical death to life. We skipped over this early, but notice in the first part of this verse, trespasses. It's not boo-boos. It's not my bads. It's trespasses. It's treason. We deserve death. We are rebelling against God. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, we are rebellion towards God, and yet God takes a bunch of rebels, and yet he makes them alive. And soon we're going to see how absurd this text gets because God isn't done yet with how amazing it is. I remember when I became a Christian when I was 15. And I remember after I encountered God and, and I surrendered to Jesus and I put my trust and hope in Christ, I remember leaving the auditorium that day in July 14, 2003. And I remember walking out and I felt like the world was brighter. I, it's like, have you ever seen one of those YouTube videos of people who wear those glasses that correct their color vision issue, and they can see colors, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful, right? Like, I'm colorblind, so I, I want to buy, I want one of those glasses, so if uh, Pastor Appreciation month, month comes along, you know, 
and you want to pony up $400 for those glasses, I'd love that. But, but you've seen that picture, right? Oh my gosh, colors. And that's what happened when Jesus saved me. I looked around and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is it. And I remember the, this thought came to my mind. So this is what it looks like. To, this is what it means to live. And I remember all of a sudden, this huge burden that was on my back, I didn't even know it was there. I felt this restriction in my chest release, and I felt like I could breathe deeper. I was like, oh my gosh, like, I didn't know I was carrying all this shame and all this guilt and all this weight. And I could breathe, and I remember thinking this thought, so you're the one I've been searching for. You're the one, God, that I've been longing for. And God completely transformed my life 15 years ago. And I know many of your stories in here, and I know a lot of you guys have stories like that. Now let's look at verse 6. Let's see more of the absurdity of the gospel, of the goodness of Jesus. Verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He does two things. He raised us up and he seats us with Christ. Notice that it says with Christ and with him. If you could read it in the original languages in Greek, you would see it over and over again repeated, with him, with him, with him, with him. It's quite beautiful because it's trying to, Paul's trying to emphasize that apart from being connected to Christ, we have nothing. It's not like God just like, oh, here's grace, here's righteousness. No, no, no. It's all because we're connected. We're connected with him. He is our head and we are a part of his body. He's brought us into himself. And somehow, what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago when he raised from the dead? We are some sort, some sort of mystical, spiritual way. We were raised with him too. All of us who are in Christ. And you know what? This is why Christians should be the most humble people in the world. Now, if you do a poll and say, hey, what's one, the number one characteristic of Christians? You probably hear what? Judgmental, hypocritical. The number one thing should be humble. Humble. Gracious. Why? Because every Christian who's truly Christian has been brought from death to life. And you don't brag about that. Can you imagine someone going around and you could see a kid, hey, I'm alive, I'm alive, I was born. He's like, what's wrong with you, man? Everyone's born, right? I was born, right? What idiocy, going to a, a cemetery, I'm alive and you're not. I was born and you're dead. How can a Christian say such a thing? How can we look at someone else and judge them like, oh man, I was bad, but you're like really bad. Like you're deader than I was. Dead is dead. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's a, the great neutralizer. It brings us down to the same level. We can't look at each other. And I've been, I just remember a couple of years ago hearing a guy's story. He was going to join my small group. And, when, and during this story, he said, hey, I just want you to know I've killed someone. <laughs> like, oh, Okay. Did you, uh, yeah, they haven't caught me yet. I'm like, okay, all right. And I have no judgment towards him because that's exactly what I would have done if I was in a situation with the wicked heart that I had, right? It's only mercy that I have not killed someone. It's only God's mercy. We're all the same before Christ. We were all dead. Now, number two, what does Christ do? He brings us, he raises us up, and God also seats us with Christ, seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that seating language sound like? That's a weird language, but if you are familiar with the Bible, seating is, is royal language. He's sharing his throne with us. Do you guys see the absurdity of this text? I mean, in the beginning of the chapter, we're dead and we're rebels, and then at the end of the, uh, end of the section... We're not only raised to life, but we're seated with him in his throne. Now check out Revelation 3.21. This is not hyperbole only. This is a real thing. He, is, and he has made us his own. He has given us the rights of being a royal son. The one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I had conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you see the lunacy of the gospel? I mean, it's one thing to be like, all right, we're good. Like, you guys are really bad, and I've forgiven you, but we're cool. But, like, just don't be near me. I don't like you. All right, it would be pretty amazing for God to just be like, we're cool. It would be even amazing to say, hey, you could be in my courthouse, in my home. And then he just goes all crazy and says, hey, you can sit on my throne with me. Who, who, who is like this? What God is like this? This is absurdity. This is amazing. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And notice this. 
God has already seated us. Is that future or past tense? Look, look at the verse 6. Is that future or past tense? Seated. Is that a current reality? Yeah, that's right now. How can that be? Well, somehow we, because we're so connected to Christ, what he has done is now for us. And so even though we're on this earthly world, in one sense, we are reigning with Christ right now at this moment. And that's why Ephesians 1.21 is so powerful because Ross covered this last week, Jesus being the head, and he says that all things have been put under his feet. If you could pull up Ephesians 1.21 real quick. All things are under Christ's feet. Who's his feet? Well, you look in other passages, we're the body of Christ. And so Satan and all the world is under our feet because we're connected to the head who's ruling over all things. This is insanity. This is beautiful. He has raised us up and seated us with him. And so there's an already not yet reality happening again like we've been talking about. And then I love how he ends that passage. He says, by grace you have been saved. And Pastor Ross is going to talk about that more next week. Let's finally end with this. What is the purpose of God doing all this? Why is God doing this? Well, look at verse 7. He gives us the answer. Look at that beautiful language, so that. Chapter 2, verse 7. So that. Why is he doing all this? Bringing us to life? Raising us up? Seating, with, seating us in the heavenly places? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Look again at that. What is the purpose for him bringing us to life? So that he can lavish love and mercy upon us forever and ever. There's a lot in the scriptures that talk about everything that God does is for his glory. But I want to make it clear, it is to his glory to lavish love, to, to overflow this beautiful love, this tri Trinitarian love he has within himself, to welcome us into this love, bring us an overflow and lavish this love on us forever. I remember when I read this in college, in Bible college, and I just could not get over this for so long. Wait, what? Like, you are saving me so that you can love me? You are saving me so you can lavish grace upon me forever? So forever, for a million years later, I can just continue to receive your love and enjoy your creation? Unbelievable. And notice that it says the immeasurable riches. Riches, his grace is immeasurable. His mercy, his love is immeasurable. His power is immeasurable. You cannot measure it. You know when you know when you're really rich? is when you can't count how much money you have. I've never been in that case. I, I don't know if any of you guys have ever been in that situation. I can always count. It's not hard. It's really quick. But God has so much love, so much riches of his mercy that he can't even count. It's immeasurable, incomparable. And so that's why I think Tim Keller's quote is so fitting. Many of you guys have known this. It goes like this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed. And this is the first part of the chapter. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to wrap it up with this beautiful illustration by this pastor, Richard Koken. And he just says, imagine you are a decaying corpse bound up in chains inside a coffin on a conveyor belt, slowly advancing towards the flames of a crematorium fire. Suddenly, as the coffin is engulfed by flames, someone leaps into the flames, smashes open the coffin, and despite the most horrific burns and scars that, that will scar him forever, retrieves your corpse, <sighs> breathes life into your body, washes you and clothes you with his own clothes, tenderly carries you to his chauffeur, driven Bentley, and takes you home to his father's presidential palace to stay in his rooms and feast at his table, enjoying the abundant hospitality of his father forever. That's what happens in chapter 2. Isn't that beautiful? I want to end by saying this. This room right now, this is going to be hard to hear, but hear me please. I love you. This room right here is divided. It's an irresponsible thing to 
kind of project upon people and stereotype people, but this is something I can say with God's authority, with the authority of God himself. In this room, there's only two types of people. There's alive people and dead. In this room right now, there's either spiritually alive people and dead, spiritually dead people. What are you? If you're dead, you will stay dead unless someone comes and rescues you. Unless someone brings life to you. Unless you have a but God. But remember, God is rich in mercy. He loves to be merciful. He loves you. And so what are you waiting for? Scripture promises is if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And maybe you don't want Christ, but inside you say, you know, I don't want Christ, but I want to want Christ. And if that's the case, there's so much hope. Because God is drawing you. Maybe you just kind of want to want it. That's you. Come talk with us. We want to pray with you and talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus and be alive. And if you're alive in here, praise God. How should you now live? And that how should you live? You should live with just your mind blown with me. God is so merciful. Who is like this God? Full of love. Willing to go to the depth of our darkness to rescue us so that he can lavish love on us forever. So... Dale's going to come up, and we're going to have a time of reflection. Um, Dale and Hannah are going to come up, um, and we're going to have a time of reflection. And I just want to welcome you to just meditate on the state you were before Christ. And if you're not sure you've ever had a but God moment, you would dwell in your moment and pray and talk to God. And, um, and so I want to welcome you to that. So let's pray. Father, I said a lot here, and I know that some of the things I said were hard and offensive. And I do pray, Lord, that you would be so merciful to bring life from these words. Father, oh, that I would have a more eloquent tongue to speak of these truths. Or that I would be older and more mature so that I would be able to portray these truths. But I'm not, Father. So would you take what I just did, what I said, and do mighty works to him by your spirit. I rebuke the evil one, the God of this world that is blinding people even now in this room. Would the veil be removed? And light would shine. In Christ, you would be seen as glorious and beautiful, and we would be able to see our state and our need for you. And for every Christian in here who that has already happened, may it be fresh for them. May the goodness of your mercy upon them be fresh as ever before, just like the first day that they opened their eyes and saw you. Have your way, Lord. In Jesus' name.